Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. As we have discussed in previous episodes, we're using this podcast to showcase the amazing work of people who have dedicated their lives to living and working in some of the most challenging, unique, and inspiring places in the world. In doing so, we explore solutions that all of us can be a part of in order to protect wildlife and the ecosystems that all of us depend on for healthy, prosperous lives. We recognize that each of us experiences nature in different ways, and all of us have unique talents and abilities to inspire others to explore, connect with, and protect Mother Nature, no matter how we interact with her. Our guest today is Ankita Anand, a journalist, writer, poet based in Delhi, India, who writes in Hindi and English. She has been awarded numerous prizes in India, Asia, and Europe. Of note, Ankita received the Jijavisha Fellowship to facilitate poetry workshops for girls in Delhi's government schools and the She Creates Change Fellowship to campaign for dignified visual representation of sexual violence survivors in the media. In addition to those noble efforts, Ankita's reporting ranges from a farmer launching a career in organic, climate-smart agriculture in response to his mother's illness, to the perils of gold mining in Zimbabwe, to the risks faced by indigenous populations in India due to ecosystem destruction. Ankita, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the Voices of Nature podcast. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. And, and as we start this conversation, just tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to be a journalist, writer, and a poet. Uh, well, I grew up with my grandparents in the states of Bihar and Sharkhand. And both states have a lot of greenery. So I kind of always took that for granted, this presence of trees and bees around me. And I was quite dreamy, still am, I think, and used to read a lot because books gave me so much. I didn't have a lot of children to play with. And I spent most of my time with my nose and my books. So I felt like if books can be these magical things, then I want to be the magician who would probably someday write such words for other people to take joy in. And I wanted to be a writer. So that was when I was still in school. Then for my college education, I came to this big city, uh, the national capital of Delhi. And uh, I saw that the, the inequalities which I had had uh, small glimpse of when I was uh, younger actually grew to be much, much bigger in this metropolis. And I felt like if there are such huge uh, differences between people and if so many people do not have uh, access to even the most basic of resources, then will it do the world any good if I become a writer and so many people don't even have uh, food to eat or decent place to live or clean air to breathe what's the point of writing and what's the point of uh, creating these uh, stories or books and that's why I gravitated towards activism and I became an activist with the right to information uh, the national campaign for right to information in India and started working with them but of course, writing was a very uh, deep-seated passion in me, and it never 
quite left me and uh, because of which i also kind of dabbled in editing and for two years uh, i was uh, i was an editor with penguin books in delhi and then i started feeling that you know i'm doing these things but i am kind of neglecting what was my first love and passion and oh i have to get back to writing and i have to find a way to make myself useful to the world through writing while all this was going on uh, in 2014 we had uh, the general elections in the country and uh, the bharatiya janata party came to power and it really changed a lot of things uh, in the country in my life because suddenly i felt that i was not able to speak to a lot of friends to a lot of people i had known for a long period of time because there was just this huge polarization uh, with this right wing government in power and i felt like wow i have known these people for really long and what 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 has happened i we can't even be civil to each other why can't we discuss and disagree respectfully and i felt like i was losing language in a way i felt like what is the kind of language which will help me talk to these people uh, and you know still have the love and affection we have for each other and i don't even want to i mean i'm not even thinking right now of uh, everyone agreeing but at least you know having that kind of respect for our differences and then i think i very strongly uh, came back to my writing and poetry and journalism journalism because i felt like people are saying so many things i want to just go uh, to places myself i want to travel and see and witness truth for myself and then bring it back to people as it is so instead of trying to be this big change agent and telling people what to think i thought i would now just be quieter and observe and document everything that i'm seeing and put it in front of people and they can decide what to think so that was my foray into journalism poetry also became stronger and more frequent because i realized that when i write or uh, when i have these poetry performances people respond very warmly and people of different ideologies so i realized that once we deal with feelings and compassion that is something people immediately respond to irrespective of their ideologies so i felt like okay this is the time when i want to come back to the written form and i want to ground myself in these various forms like writing journalism and poetry that's a wonderful story and now i'd like you maybe to take it one step further so how how do you see the connection between journalism and writing and conservation and why actually is journalism and writing so important to healthy conservation practices protecting mother nature protecting ecosystems well i don't know if it's the answer is the kind of answer you're looking for but i would answer from a very personal place so writing is grounding for me it invites self exploration it invites reflection it is a call for radical honesty and it is a journey a process of evolution that happens not just for the writer but also for the reader and that takes place over a period of time it's not immediate it's not dramatic it's not overnight it may just take years but it is happening slowly so whenever i get too impatient or maybe even too self important 
about what i would like my writing to achieve i look at nature i look at the trees around me i look at even these potted plants that i have around my house and i can see how intricately woven how closely intertwined ecosystems are and i realize that each one of us has a very specific role to play in serving the earth or in bringing about the change where needed so if i'm looking at something that is very disturbing some act of violence that has happened and i feel like oh but how can writing change this maybe i should have stayed an activist or maybe i should have done something else maybe i should have studied law and gone to the courts to stop these things and i remind myself that this was my calling writing was my calling and there are also lawyers and there are also activists and every person is doing their own job in their own way and if i just keep doing my own job uh, in this ecosystem uh, i will i mean change will be brought about where each just like in nature every little seed and every little and big creature have their own specific role to play to maintain the balance i feel like well writing is my you know maybe i'm just the bird in this little bird in the ecosystem and i just should my should just play my role and not try to become over ambitious and change everything overnight that is amazing and and very well said thank you for that but i would argue that you in some of your writing you combine the activism with the journalism and you know one of the stories you wrote um about small scale mining in zimbabwe is one of those that that comes to mind and you know it's something that we at global conservation core face all the time as well i mean there's there's a balance between economic development and the the need for people that to earn a living have a job keep a roof over their head and our our collective desire to protect nature and respect nature um and your your story highlighted that that tension very well i think and and can you tell us a little bit more about what brought you to zimbabwe what you wrote about and and some of your reflections on that yeah again it happened at a very opportune time because a lot was happening in my country like i said growing instances of uh, polarization uh, mob violence and so on and i was feeling quite disconnected to a lot of things i mean i saw the hard work that people did to kind of oppose these things to form strong resistance but at the same time i felt like we were doing kind of the same things working so hard uh, and still getting frustrated with the results so i felt like so many other countries are also facing oppression so what are they doing about it i started reading more about other countries trying to see if there's anything there that perhaps we are missing here in our context and around that time uh, i got an email from a journalist in zimbabwe uh, steve or steven soroti who i later worked with and he said that he is looking for a journalist in india to collaborate with and i felt like maybe this is my chance to find out what are the possible connections between our countries what are the common problems we are facing and uh, i agreed to collaborate with him and we did a report on how illicit small scale gold mining in zimbabwe is uh, fueling this gold smuggling that is finally happening 
uh, in India and uh, how it is affecting the economy in Zimbabwe, affecting the unprotected minors there, unprotected not just in terms of their physical health and security, but also in terms of the kind of wages they were getting or the kind of education they had to give up to work on those mines or the sexual violence the women were facing. Uh, And I'd also done mining reports in India. So I felt like there's so many problems that are common to our countries. So instead of feeling like, uh, oh, that's too far away and what has that got to do with my problem, maybe we should look to form these connections because that's what people say, right? That oppressors are very (laughs) well organized and united and uh, when we are trying to form our resistance, we tend to be divided. So I felt like, okay, this is the time to collaborate and learn from each other and maybe even contribute to each other across the borders. So that's how I got involved in the project. And you've written similar articles about mining efforts in India, right? Around uranium mining and in communities that have both supported and opposed those efforts. Can you talk a bit more about those as well? Yeah, Uh, Like I was saying that I was seeing a lot of frustration around resistance movements in India, uh, along with victories, but also in the long run, people could not fulfill the aims they had set out to and they had to settle for bad compromises from either corporates or the government. And then I heard about this place, the state in India called Meghalaya, uh, that actually successfully managed to resist mining and I thought wow how does one do that I want to go there and see uh, what they did over there Uh, so I did go to report there and I talked to a lot of people and went to the mining site and uh, some of the things I found which were uh, which were quite crucial to this opposition they managed to successfully put up Uh, one was that uh, because of the presence of the indigenous community there, there's a very strong tie to the land. Uh, it's not just seen as a saleable commodity, but as home, as something that ha- that has been a habitat for their ancestors uh, over years. And it's not something to be uh, easily given up in exchange for money. And the other thing is the constitution of India also gives special rights to these places where there is a strong presence of indigenous communities and people can form their own councils and they have a certain degree of autonomy uh, to take their own decisions. So while in other states, people felt quite bogged down by the central government, here in this state, people, of course, felt the pressures uh, pressures of uh, the center but they also felt quite independent and autonomous uh, as this uh, group of people that had been living there and taking their own decisions historically. There is even an 1853 report by an officer of the British government who who writes his report and says that, you know, these, he says something like these tribal chiefs will agree to some of our terms, but they have said that they do not want anything to do with our courts or the government. So that there was this history of very strong uh, indigenous leadership that also kind of made them much stronger. They, the women there uh, were 
were kind of foremost in putting up a resistance in fact the face of the resistance was a 90 year old woman uh, living in extreme poverty i visited her and she was ill and sometime back she passed away actually and i was quite apologetic because i knew that a lot of journalists go to her and she was not keeping well so i said you know i will interview you only if you're feeling well enough and i don't want to trouble you and she said you know when it comes to asserting my right over my land i will do it any number of times and she spoke to me and she said that this is my land this is my home and money can't buy it so that kind of spirit and very well uh, a very strong articulation from the women there was also a common factor that i noticed there the other thing was the students union presence who actually went from village to village telling people about the kind of effects mining especially uranium mining can have on environment on the uh, on the health of the people and they had this film called buddha weeps in jadugoda which is a film on the effect of radiation on people in the eastern state of charkhand uh, and that film actually shook people a lot and they said that this is not we want for our community we don't uh, want our children our people to suffer these uh, these effects on their health and i think that kind, that visual representation was quite strongly etched in their mind because they were not sure about which state it was filmed in and so on but every person i met must have mentioned that film and said that we have seen what happens uh, when you do uranium mining and uh, we don't want our local communities to suffer that so the student union and the local leaders efforts to kind of do this door to door campaigning and raise awareness was also a big reason that led to it and how did they how did they mobilize both the this very impressive 90 year old grandmother and the students who you know who in a way uh in the spectrum of life were coming at this um from very different perspectives how did they kind of build this movement of opposition um was it through technology was it through as you alluded to kind of you know almost going door to door and meeting people in person what did they do to inspire others to support their efforts yeah actually the students union itself is very well connected they have a lot of members registered so instead of just being based in the state capital they would have members in all the villages so so the whole thing actually became very accessible for people this news or these films and the uh, chief the indigenous people's chief that i spoke to he said that i used to take a projector uh, and travel to different villages so technology but very simple technology and of course mobile phones came you also then have the luxury of seeing films on the phone so but actually what i witnessed in my reporting was this really huge network of young people uh, who were spread who not just uh, centered in the city but spread throughout these villages who helped in spreading the word but there's also something i noticed uh, it came up a few times uh, not as much as health or environment but there was also this kind of suspicion of quote unquote outsiders and there was a feeling that uh, if the company 
comes in and if so many four lane roads are built it would also bring in a lot of uh, outsiders so inkito let me put you on the spot then um what do you see as the appropriate balance between economic development and conserving both human and natural resources i mean where you know th- there is a there is a tension and there is a bit of a happy medium in this debate and where where do you see that well i think one is a kind of honest like i spoke of radical honesty earlier a kind of honest appraisal of what our needs and desires are really so uh when you say economic development i am thinking not just in terms of currency uh but also in terms of material needs so if i think of a balance between the material needs and desires of human beings and that of natural resources a lot of writings that i came across in this period when the world was kind of uh, shut down because of covid there was a lot of reflection uh there was a lot of thinking especially by the writing community but also outside of that uh because so much of what we knew as essential that oh we cannot do we do not go to this place uh we cannot make do if these factories are not running all those were kind of thrown off because of course people lost their employment and so on but in terms of the things that those factories were producing a lot of them not all of them but uh those things were probably not needed at all so i think if we do an honest assessment of things we need uh so suppose i can say that oh uh, i would like a coat and i can assess that as okay it's i live in delhi it gets cold in winter and that is why i would like a coat but if i say something like i would like to have 20 coats that doesn't quite fit a logical understanding so i would ask myself okay why do i want 20 coats in 20 different colors and then i would say something like i like to be appreciated when i go out i like to be approved of i do not want to be seen as poor so then coming back to the question of okay so I don't want quotes I want appreciation I want approval I want respect is there a way of getting these through the relationships in our community through the ways we interact with each other and behave with each other rather than setting up a factory that will give me 20 quotes so I think those are the kind of very self reflective questions that we need to ask ourselves to get to this balance of economic development and conservation of our resources. Yeah, those are those really are great questions to ask and do you think you know looking at the the students many of whom close to relatively close to your age was that their mindset? I mean were they you know wanting to have you know these these factories running as you said this mining to to be occurring but to to do so in a way that's that is not as aggressive and not as rampant um as we were so accustomed to. Yeah actually you made a very good point because both the students and the older residents of the place uh did admit that they want basic things like electricity like roads to travel to the city faster if they need something that is not available in their village or if they need access to some medical facility they wanted those things but they didn't want it at the cost of 
their health or their environment and that's what the company and the government was trying to tell them that you let us come in and we will give you these basic things that you desperately need and the question of the villagers were yes we need these things but do not do we not deserve these very basic facilities as human beings or as residents of the state why must you take away our land and why must you take away our health to give us these roads or to give us uh, electricity which is our basic right as citizens or as people of this land and so what was the ultimate outcome did the students in this brave 90 year old woman persevere how did it end up uh yes they won the struggle and uh, they suspect that the company might still be planning to come back but so far uh, i mean they did succeed at the time so if it happens again i don't know what will be the consequence but they succeeded uh they were they were definitely upset that uh about that kind of transactional uh transactional promise that the company had been making of health facilities and electricity because they had started some of those things uh i saw this abandoned health facility around this remote village which was near the mining site and there was definitely disappointment about it uh, that that was abandoned uh, because this is i mean a primary health center is something each uh, village deserves so there was a kind of bitterness about that but as far as stopping the mining goes they did succeed and what was the overall sentiment in the community i mean was it you know obviously there were some people who i'm sure were expecting to have jobs there were many who probably both needed and 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 saw the importance of things like community health centers better roads and so on i mean so i assume that the efforts of the students and and those opposing the mining were you know did at times face criticism right they did uh in fact that's related to the point i was forgetting to make earlier so when i talk of groups like the students union or the villagers and their fear of outsiders apart from other fears like the health and environment being impacted there was also this uh, rebellion against a hierarchy that gets imposed when a company from outside comes and uh, transplants itself in a local community because i was talking to the editor of a newspaper and he said that whenever something like this happens the local populace is not going to get the best jobs they are going to be the miners they are going to be the laborers they are going to lift heavy stuff and take it to and fro so they are going to actually be paid pittance and uh, there will be so called jobs but they will have their own health risks while the people who will be getting paid well will be the people at the top and we won't be getting those jobs we haven't even been given the kind of formal education we don't have those kind of good educational facilities around here that would train our youth to work in these companies so we do not want to become servants in this corporation which is then ruled by people uh, from outside uh, ruled by people who are much more privileged while we serve them and their interests so how do you break that how do you break that dynamic then right of this hierarchy of oftentimes the well paying jobs the managerial positions going to people from outside the community and and as you said 
those in the community being forced to take the low pain, very difficult, physically somewhat demeaning jobs. So how, how do you how do you change that dynamic? Uh, so what they said was they wanted the government to generate jobs locally instead of imposing this body from outside. They wanted better education. They wanted more employment opportunities created within the state, e- even using the natural resources, but you using not in an extractive way. And the other thing, what you were saying about the criticism and probably the concern of some people about uh, whether this will lead to a loss of jobs, that was also there. And that was actually not very strongly heard because I'd even heard things like this one journalist who had written accounts of people who were kind of interested in the job opportunities that might come uh, with the mining company. Uh, I, when I went there, someone told me that the journalist had got beaten up and uh, that journalist almost got ready to speak with me. But on the final day, he said no. And there was a local politician who had also said that maybe the mining company will bring in some good. And uh, I thought, okay, let, let me take his view also. And I took an appointment and he was willing to meet me. Then on the final day, he refused. And he sent me a message saying, it doesn't matter what I think. Uh, the views of the people are paramount. So if this is what the majority of the people want, uh, so be it. So I think that was something that I, I wish I could have got more of. And I wish I could have met these people uh, directly and known what they feel about this kind of trade-off that they've had to make. I mean, that was also something a little worrying if that had really happened to question about whether there's a there's a place for uh, people who disagree in resistance movements. Well, and it, it seems like the community has almost drawn a distinction between, shall we say, organic economic development that is very much bottom-up. It's very much community-centric. It is almost tailored to and coming from the needs of the community rather than a very top-down approach where one large project comes in and that project is almost imposed on the community in the form of economic development. To me, that's a, a very striking distinction that you seem to have drawn out in the case of this mine, the proposed mine. Yeah, I would definitely say that, in especially put in the context of their autonomous history and their uh, the history of assertion. And I found this to be different from people in some other places where there was also exploitation, but they didn't have that kind of confidence and they felt like, well, we are fighting, but we are poor. So I don't, we don't know what we can do or how much longer we can save off the government or the company. I found, I found that missing here and there was much more confidence and much more a sense of self-respect uh, for their own autonomy and therefore their demands were of the kind where they felt that it should uh, it should be focused, the development opportunities should be focused on their needs and should be done in consultation with them rather than being imposed on them. So if you were if you were to walk into a corporation uh, considering a you know a mining project, a infrastructure project, whatever, 
uh, in, be it in India, be it in Zimbabwe, anywhere you visited, and they said to you, you know, give us one piece of advice as to how we could strike a balance between respecting the community, doing something good for the community, as well as, you know, achieving the, the economic development and the, the production that we want to achieve. What would be that one piece of advice that you'd give the company? Well, I would say that do not go with a plan, uh, do not go with a structure, uh, go with an idea, go with a proposal and be really ready to receive, be really ready to listen, uh, go respecting the people, uh, not not thinking of yourselves as you know superior because you have this kind of formal education or because you have money, but uh, knowing that you are people who are who who want to do something there, and you are the ones who who are interested in making a project there and really being very open, involving the local people at each stage, knowing that it's something for their community and you will not tell them what they need. They will tell you what they need and you have to spend time there. You have to uh, kind of apprise yourself of, uh, the, the culture, the local customs, the history of the place and really understand the place rather than impose your presence there. I remember uh, people telling me that when the company had started some mining preparations in the region, they were taking measurements, they were calling people to carry their equipments and the people had no information about what was going on. They said we were never told anything the people who had come were extremely rude and they were just ordering us about and asking us for information that they needed. Now that is definitely not the way to go. Yeah, that's, that's really great advice. And that's, um, that's something that uh, I would have to say most every corporation needs to uh, take heart of and, and to the credit of some, I, I think some companies and some organizations are, are now starting to see that they have to, come in and listen rather than come in and tell people what to do and how to do it. So well said. I want to now turn to my, my favorite story of yours and I, the farmer Ravdeep uh, who created his own market for organic foods through some very innovative yet common sense approaches to his farming. Can you tell us why he did this and tell us why he actually created his own market for his agricultural products? Yeah. Ravdeep was a farmer in the northern state of Punjab that I had met uh, when I was doing this series of a uh, series on how organic farming is helping mitigate the challenges to the climate crisis. And uh, his story is also something that left an impression on my mind because it was really a personal crisis that led him to do something much bigger. When his mother fell sick, he would take her to the hospital regularly and he started seeing these little children and people of all ages. But he said that he was really moved uh, looking at the children there who would come to the hospitals and uh, a lot of them had cancer. And he realized that this, he realized that this was not the way they could go on. He realized that this is happening because uh, 
in his own words we are putting poison in our food through these chemicals and he felt that he had to do something about it because his mother's uh, health and eventual death had a lasting impression in fact when his mother got to hear about it she was not happy because uh, some as someone living in rural india and considering the fact that farming has not been a lucrative profession at all uh, there have been a lot of farmer suicides in india even now as i speak farmers have been protesting uh, for their rights so it has it's not seen any more a bright future for young people so sometimes farmers would invest everything they have in their children's education so they do not have to farm the land so when ravdeep's mother heard that he was going to become a farmer she was distraught because she had educated her son and she wanted him to have a job that would pay uh, decently unlike farming with all its uncertainties but uh, ravdeep laughed and told me that his mother had said that even if you touch soil it would become gold and he sort of he said she didn't know that i would take it so literally and i would actually turn my attention to soil and then he started doing organic farming he first of all he did away with uh, paddy farming which is quite popular in punjab because of the commercial returns it brings but it it is water intensive it's not good for the soil so he he decided to uh, to sort of plant more varied crops also healthier and uh, he did away with chemicals completely and then in a few years he saw that the kind of biodiversity he had seen growing up as a child slowly started blooming around his farm and i visited his farm and it was a beautiful place i i took some photographs there were there were insects i hadn't seen uh, in nature there were butterflies and he said that all of those started coming back when he did away with chemicals and he went into organic farming and now his whole family uh, his spouse and his little daughter all of them are invested and while i was with them i saw them making uh, sweets from the from the crops they had grown and also preparing them to sell in the local market so i also really liked how the family was uh, invested in it so instead of this typical city way of life where people have their individual jobs and then they try to make time for the family there was this family doing this work together which was part of their life and life was work and i really loved how uh, wholesome and uh, complete that was Oh, so that's Ravdeep's story from Punjab. So how can all of us find the the courage to be the next Ravdeep? I mean, we don't we don't have to become a farmer. Um, we don't have to, you know, completely change what we do or how we do it. But you know, Ravdeep showed it a lot of courage, and he is now reaping the. not only he but his community is reaping the rewards of his efforts i mean he's in a way created a, a healthy ecosystem on his farm what's your advice for all of us to just take a bit of inspiration and a bit of insight from his work and apply it to our lives to to kind of achieve what he has been able to do uh i would say some very simple things that we can do at uh find out about local efforts organizations or groups of individuals who are working with animals or working on farming 
like i have this uh, i know of this farm about uh, 20 30 kilometers from my house probably uh, it's run by someone who started rescuing injured animals and uh, because there were so much uh, so many animals there was so much dung she thought okay why not use this dung now as manure and slowly she started growing uh, vegetables and growing crops and now it's this place which has uh, which has plants which has trees which has animals and people regularly go there do their visits and try to have their little picnics understand the farmland talk to the people who are growing the food uh, this is not something uh, that is very common in delhi but it's also not far from the city of delhi so on weekends when people make these visits uh, to such farmlands or to nearby forested areas uh, it it helps a lot in contributing to these efforts if you're buying from these places or uh, if you're volunteering there and uh, giving your labor to sustaining these farms i have taken a lot of people to such places my friends and family and different kinds i mean they it's not like they're all uh, actively interested in nature or have uh, explicitly asked me to take them to such a place but when i suggest that okay there's a place like this we can visit they have been interested and so far in this variety of people that i took there nobody ever said that they did not like it or that they did not feel a connection everybody would talk of oh but this is how i grew up this is this reminds me of my grandmother's place this reminds me of how i grew up with my parents when i was living in this town or village so that's a part of everyone's dna i mean we are connected to nature because we are nature we are natural we are biological so it's meant that connection is already there we just need to tap into it it doesn't mean that everyone wants to live in a village but these kind of regular interactions with the earth or people who work very closely uh with the land it brings back that forgotten respect connection and sensitivity to nature well building on that very eloquent statement and and i always save this question for last you know i and i always try to end these conversations on a on a positive note as well so you know despite all the challenges we face as a society all the you know destruction of habitats and ecosystems that we've seen and the people struggling for a better life i mean there is there is hope for a better future and and we all have our own sources of hope for how that will be achieved what's what's your hope for a better future and how do you see that coming about uh my hope is i know the crisis looming before us is huge but it if we keep thinking of how big it is i mean we should we should remember that and act accordingly but we should not let it uh paralyze us into inaction so if we just start with wherever we are if we just start with small steps i mean i know that uh something like composting is a very small thing to do and but a few years ago i probably wouldn't even have thought of it and uh now i do it religiously every day uh and just these kind of seeing these kind of efforts around me having grown in the past few years 
the way people are living and trying to live a lot of people i think it has i read i read such reports much more often i come across such people much more often and i think what i see around me gives me hope and i am hopeful because there's no other way to go on otherwise we would just not want to we just you know sit and wait for doom so i am hopeful because well what else can you do uh, and because i see so many efforts around me like i said because when i take my four year young niece out and ask her if she wants to go to the market or the park she chooses the park <laughs> so i'm hopeful thank you well said and much appreciated so ankita it's been a wonderful conversation i just so much appreciate and i know the listeners of the podcast will so much appreciate the all the insights that you shared about the balance that people are trying to strike in their communities between you know how they want to live and and how they want their their the environment in which they live to be respected and and treasured for future generations so i i really appreciate your time and really appreciate your insights thank you thank you so much i really liked talking to you about it and it has kind of rejuvenated the hope that i spoke of great well thank you so much and all the best and we look forward to staying in touch in the future thank you bye bye bye